I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to manifest the future we want to see by living more fully and honestly in the present, a comic book understanding of reality, but where everyone is a superhero. That's right. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, video game writer, comic book creator, and my former assistant, Sean Kittleson. And when I take myself, you know, in that Dr. Manhattan place, mm. being in the past, the present, and the future, and existing in all all spaces and times at the same time, and I bring myself back to like, well, what am I supposed to do right now? I think often on advice that you gave me a long, long time ago, which was you can't really make a big change with a big movement. Sean and I are going to consider our society in revolt and how pop media from comic books to video games helps us see the choices before us. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and you're on Team Human. I worked with Sean Kittleson back in the early 2000s. He was a student in NYU's screenwriting program, and I think he actually approached me by email looking for an opportunity to work or had come on as an intern of some kind. And he eventually became a paid assistant and helped a whole lot on my graphic novel ADD, after which I helped him get a job at DC Comics, and the rest, well, it's been all him. He's a fascinating character, a lifelong comics fan, Superman in particular, who even named his son Clark. He's best known for writing stories for video games like Mortal Kombat 11 and Injustice 2, but I know him better as a comics writer, particularly the series Heart Attack, which he finished shortly before getting a heart attack of his own. Coincidence? Oh, probably yes, but it does at least hint at what we ended up talking about, which is the role of these delightful media forms in changing how we play with reality, what we consider possible, and where we find the high leverage points for system-wide change. Plus, he's just a really sweet guy. So here's my conversation with the great, wonderful, and sweet Sean Kittleson. So there's so much to talk about. First off, Heart Attack. Yeah. Heart Attack is a book of graphic novelness. Yes. And an event in your life. Yes. Which came first? <laughs> the book. Uh, the book, I pitched it 10 years ago. 
and sold the pitch to Skybound and then started writing it and got lost along the way because writing video games was more lucrative. And I, I kind of wrote Heart Attack in the Nooks and Crannies between video games and, and other projects. Uh-huh. And, and then the book itself actually debuted in 2019, right before the pandemic. As a pamphlet comic? or As, is a, it? as a monthly comic. Yeah. And then was immediately dropped from shipping with everything else when all the stores closed in March of 2020. Right. And when the stores opened back up, sales had tanked so badly that it was it was as if the book had never come out. Oh. It just it died a very ignominious, <laughs> as <laughs> quiet. Many, as many a great project did. Yeah, it was the tree that fell in the forest. No right. one was around to to see it rot. But then it sat. We already had like another arc that was already finished. We already had six more issues that were done, and it just took these last few years to be able to wait for shipping schedules. And Eric Zavadsky, the artist on it, was was off drawing books about. Krypton for for DC, the House of L series. Uh, so when we could finally get Eric back to finish the last chapter and get everything in place, like now we get to bring the graphic novel out. And it was right after we had figured out the plan to bring the book out that uh, I had my actual heart attack <laughs> last uh, right before Christmas. And you fell year. down. I didn't fall. I slowly went down to the couch and struggled to live for like the next like 30 minutes and you were what 38 for that 38 i was five days shy of my 39th birthday do you know what it was it was a heart attack yeah even while it was happening you're like oh Oh, i think i'm having i've got gas so when it when it was happening i thought (laughs) it was kind of like having gas i thought it was motion sickness from playing a video game with like really nice ray trace graphics i'm like oh my gosh is this motion sickness but it definitely wasn't because my apple watch had my heart rate going all over the place and I'm looking at all the signs and I'm seeing kind of the vignette. It was like the end of a silent movie. I'm seeing the vignette close and sound is going all weird and I'm sweating, but I'm cold. Like there was a lot of, a lot of scary things happening and I tried to treat it like a bad trip. Right. Like I really talk through it, talk through it, breathe through it. Breathing became hard, but I just, I'm taking these like really shallow breaths and just like in through the nose, out through the mouth and like one breath at a time. And the, this the vignette is kind of pulsing as I'm breathing and it's I'm just keeping it open. It's like it's like trying to yeah. keep your eyes open when you're really, really tired. And then it ended when I went to the cardiologist to to find out, like, hey, did I have a heart attack? Yeah. And he takes my readings and my EKG and all this my blood pressure and all this stuff. And he goes, You you had a heart attack. Like he compared my EKG to a previous. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you you've had a heart attack. So we're going to rush you to the emergency room and do the emergency angiogram and then does that and diagnoses me with 60% block and one like, like artery and all that fun stuff. Uh, tells me that I've got some changes I want to make. Otherwise my, my body's genetically predisposed to die young. Like if I keep living the way and you've known me for a while, but, but like I lived fully, I never said no to anything. There was nothing I wouldn't drink, nothing I wouldn't eat, nothing I wouldn't smoke. And I tried it all. And I've been to the top of every mountain. And now there's no more hills to climb, and nor should I. uh, (laughs) Because I didn't moderate enough early in life. So I I have to stop young. Do a little Uh, extra moderation now. But did you ever feel like, you know, when Grant Morrison always talks about how, you know, he would write things in a comic that then manifest in his life. Did you feel there was any magical occulty something that you write a book called heart, heart attack, attack and then have one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually. Well, there's a lot in heart attack that was like really spooky, but also not, not even in a supernatural way, but just like when I started writing it, I was doing all this research into like the militarization of police and really looking at criminal justice in like Brazil and and south and central america and thinking about oh well we've got the same trends up here we're just a few years behind right you know the oh those mass demonstrations like yeah it's like what if occupy had gone wrong and someone brought knives or bricks to occupy and And then sometimes they do we do they do after us though like the um the uh, capital storm they after the election they did yeah 
after. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, so, it goes back and forth. <laughs> ping pongs, yeah. But I saw that. I mean, you know, the book is about a world where a pandemic has been uh, beaten back by genetically modified therapies and uh, given rise to this generation of kids who were born different with, with DNA that people think, well, they're not human anymore because they have variant DNA. So we can, we can deny them human rights. They become this, this subclass. Right. And then, I mean, there's so many things. I set the book in Austin because Austin has this really awful history of segregation. I was like, okay, what if we just segregate Austin again and put a wall up along I-35 where there was literally like a line between West and East Austin, between the white and black neighborhoods back right. in the day. What if we, what if we put our wall there and that's where they keep all the people that they don't want mixing with normal people, so mm-hmm. to speak. And like, you know, the sixth chapter of the book ends with this protest at that wall that turns into a massacre at the hands of the police. And Within months of that coming out, we had all the George Floyd protests right. and all that stuff. And I saw footage of people at I-35 yeah. protesting, being beaten back by police and shot with rubber bullets and all that stuff. And I just thought, like, this is all too real. Like, yeah. I don't know about the supernatural chaos magic Grant Morrison side yeah. of it as much as I just feel like, wow, I really I had my finger on a pulse and the reading that I got was pretty accurate yeah, to, that's to where thing. it was going. I mean, that's almost what I want to talk to you about is as a, in some ways, fellow artist, writer, person, I mean, I'm more nonfiction-y, but I've been, I've dabbled, as you know, in, in comics, which to me are always slightly occult or a more intuitive approach. Even if we do all the research like you did, yeah. when you're actually casting out the comic, there's a, it's a little bit different than writing words, even. It's yeah. not, I mean, it's a weirder thing. And I think that process does open you to at least to the zeitgeist, at yeah. least to the pulse. I mean, it got to the place where in August I was getting really, and people know from the show, I was getting really depressed. Yeah. Really depressed. And it got so bad. I got to the place where I said, I don't remember who I said it to. I said that I don't feel like this, my depression and and this feeling of mourning, I don't feel like it's appropriate to this moment. It's like in the succession pre-mourning. <laughs> I feel like I'm, that it's some kind of retro causality mm. happening, that there is a bad thing in the future that's mm. almost rippling back, and I'm feeling it now that when you yeah. open to it, it's not like predicting the future, it's feeling the future, because the future is so obvious when right. things are cooking up. And I feel like, well, this last, you know, what's happening in the Middle East now, this is so big. It's so big. What's happening? Yeah. It is so much pain of so many people. Wow, of course, if we were open, we would feel it before it happened. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know there are friends... I think this is a, a more recent phenomenon of people who just won't read the news, mm-hmm. right? The, the, there's the people that it's not that they want to be ignorant, but they've just decided that like news is bad for them. Too much like, trauma, like, it's too, too much, triggering. Too much. Yeah. Like it's messing me up. So you know, you've got the people who you'll say like, do you have any idea what's going on right now in the Middle East? And they'll say, I don't want to talk about the news. I don't, I don't read the news. I know, I know it's the same old thing. And you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of escalating. <laughs> there are levels to this, but like, yeah, there's a, right. There's a don't look up quality to that. There that, very much. But I understand. La, 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 la. I mean, and I've told people even when we were kids, even when you were kids, the news was not online and all the time. I mean, even CNN wasn't around when I was a kid. Yeah. You would tune in at 630 and Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw, one of those guys, it was my generation, was those guys. Yeah. And, or, or before that, you know, whoever, Walter Cronk, they would tell you what happened. And there was almost like there was some sense of mental health responsibility exercised by the networks. Mm. We're going to tell them what's happening, but we're going to have to do it in such a way that they don't drive them fucking well, crazy there, there was i mean when i when i was growing up you know like uh, desert storm was happening and stuff and I, I know that you know a lot of people trace cnn and sort of the the non-stop coverage yeah. of, of something and and news as entertainment instead of information to that but i'd give anything to go back to those days which seem far more balanced at least in terms of you know than what we get now where where we're really looking for the heat Right. A lot more 
than than before. It's it's almost like cable news is playing to social media. Right. Try, like it's it's playing to that new medium and trying to be more relevant. Uh, right. It's by, television by in a clips. digital media environment. Yeah. It's not TV anymore. No. It is fodder for content. It's, you know, 24 right. hours of clickbait. And uh, it does feed back. I mean, this is all Jacqueline propaganda and all his good yeah. old media studies, but it feeds back into the culture then. I mean, yeah. not to say, oh, I'm going to blame war on social media, but we can blame certain kinds of violence and confusion on this feedback loop. Oh, that yeah. The hysteria is a direct outcome of systems that are biased toward driving people toward hysterics. Right. Right. right, that's what they're there for. They're there to make you feel like, you know, they're there to give you the present shock. <laughs> they are. They they're are. No, to... I was just looking at a piece uh, in some paper about supposedly, you know, the violence someone, you know, attacked at Columbia University. It's like, you know, the first beginnings of the violence of the thing. And, uh, you know, you read the articles like, all right, and someone ripped down someone's poster and then someone was trying to stop them from ripping down the poster. And then the first one got kind of hit with a stick or something. Yeah. And it was like, when you look at a headline and it sounds like, oh, no, some people are getting jumped, you know, yeah. and then you look at the thing and it's like, not that it's good, but it's not quite as awful as the way it was framed to be. Oh, yeah. Because if it wasn't quite as awful, you wouldn't click on the link, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, But that's also I mean, that reminds me of there's a historical incident that I've been researching for years the bonus march in 1932 i don't know if you've read up on this mm. before but the veterans of the great war oh yeah marched on this. washington right. there's like 20 30,000 of them occupying washington occupying like along the banks of the anacostia river like buildings in pennsylvania avenue that were that were all condemned and they're peaceful the whole time not once are they storming the capitol oh. there's no january 6th moment they're they're peaceful for months while they're and they're broke, starving, unemployed veterans and their families and their children and mixed, by the way, like black and white veterans living in the same camps, camping side by side uh -huh. in the 1932. And so you have this incredibly peaceful movement. And yet there was this fear that was being stoked by certain papers and by Douglas MacArthur and people in the Hoover administration that like, well, they're all communists. And they're preparing for a coup. A coup, right. This is about the coup. And right. so they were what trying. What was it about? It was about getting immediate repayment of what was called the adjusted compensation certificate. So veterans of the Great War, World War One, had no benefits. There was no GI Bill. Right. So these men went over, over there, fought in the war, saw all of their friends getting blown right. up. Right. Ate blown mustard bits. gas yeah, and God all knows what. Yeah. Come back you know traumatized and seeing america take off with the all of the the wealth and capital right. that, that migrated thing. west yeah. right like that was all extracted from europe it was this like mass extraction of of wealth from europe to the united states by war industries and these these veterans come back and they're like we got nothing and then the depression hits and they're like now we don't even have jobs Right. But they did have this because they had protested in the 1920s. Congress had passed this act for adjusted compensation that said, like, you know, in 1945, if you have this certificate, we'll pay you some money. We'll give you right. we'll give you we'll give you like a thousand bucks. How's that sound? And they're like, great, I'll take it. Except now it's 1932. You're four years after the stock market crash. People are incredibly desperate. And they're like, I've got this piece of paper that the government says they owe me money for services rendered in 1918. Right. Why don't they pay that now? Because I'm going to starve before 1945. And you would get paid out. They called it the tombstone bonus because your bonus would get paid out to your family if you You're died. Dead. So these men are like, I'm worth more dead than alive. This is a right. fair. And so that's they, just built in breakage. They're hoping people lose yeah. these things. And yeah. So they go to Washington saying, we, we want immediate repayment of the bonus and there was a, a senator uh or a congressman from texas right patman who had a bill that that he was saying let's let's do this uh, let's repay this and he was a very populist uh type 
wanted wanted to to win the hearts and minds of of the blue collars mm. and got these these veterans stirred up like we're going to do this and they were only allowed to occupy Washington at all because of Pelham Glassford this this police chief who himself was a veteran of the war uh-huh. had been a brigadier general and was this incredible man could go on for hours about about this guy he was he was playing for team human right he was team human <laughs> like you know almost a century before there was team human and he was told by his bosses the commissioners the district of of columbia like beat the veterans back with sticks do not let them in the district and he's like are you going to give me that in writing because i don't want to take responsibility for beating american veterans right. who are coming to lobby congress and have every right to lobby congress as much as any wealthy oil baron does and they're like, well, we're not going to give you that in writing. <laughs> so he lets them stay. He lets them in. Instead of beating them back with sticks, he finds the places for them to camp. And he lets them stay there. And he lets tens of thousands come to Washington. And they are peaceful. And no one gets hurt. There's no like rise in the crime rate. There's no panhandling. Like There's just veterans marching. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And protesting and living their lives and a lot of them had a better quality of life in these Hoovervilles that that they built than they did from wherever they came from because mm-hmm. they brought in food and medical care and dental care and all kinds of stuff and then bringing it all back around the end of the summer 1932 Congress has adjourned the Senate has refused to take up the bill they're done for there's no more session. So the bill would have to be reintroduced through the house and cycled back and taken to another vote and all that stuff. And the veterans are like, we're going to stay here until 1945 if that's what it takes. And at this point, the Hoover administration, they've got the election against FDR coming up. They're like, we're done with this, like yeah. get them out. So they finally give a written order to evict the veterans to Pelham Glassford. Pelham Glassford's like, all right, I hate to do this, but I have the written order. So I'm going to carry this out and is peaceful and orderly. And he gives the veterans notice. He offers to like, we're going to pay your train fare, yeah. your, your bus fare, whatever. We'll get you, we'll get you out of here, but you got to go and we'll carry you out. If we have to carry out, if you don't want to walk, we'll carry you out. So they're starting these evictions and a scuffle occurs. Someone throws a brick and someone else throws a brick back. And before you know it, you've got veterans and police fighting. And then one of the cops pulls out a gun and and shoots. And a couple of men are shot and killed. And this is all happens in the span of like minutes. And as soon as the shooting happens, it it ends. Everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What happened there? We got out of hand. All right, let's go back to doing this orderly. So everybody's like, all right, let's take lunch. Stop this. In that time... The word gets back to the Hoover administration, who later claimed that Pelham Glassford requested assistance. Right. Pelham Glassford later denied like that he ever made that request. But they basically used that riot as justification to call in Douglas MacArthur, who is accompanied by Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton (laughs) and all these illustrious military heroes who march infantry cavalry tanks down pennsylvania avenue forcibly evict all the veterans and burn their hoovervilles behind them Mm. in firing tear gas at them and you know something not not unlike what we'd see today like and that incident is credited with giving fdr the election because you they had you know pictures in the newspaper the next morning of this flaming hooverville with the washington monument in the background Saying like madness at the Capitol, like army, yeah. army chases veterans out, burns everything behind them. This didn't win a lot of sympathy, but it, it just goes to show 
to bring it all back around it's a whole long walk yeah. but like that's an example of how easy it was before news traveled fast to take in one incident and blow it up into this big thing where suddenly you've got tanks and soldiers coming in to clean up a riot that's not happening anymore and instead perpetuating an even bigger grievance and violence against the community. And that's before social media or any craziness. So. Yeah. They're still running like cards back and forth up the street, like right. pay, paying a boy a nickel and saying, run boy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking about doing a book on this, a comic or something? I've been researching this for seven years now and I've done a bunch of trips around the country and, and like to Washington and the library of Congress and, but it's why is he going to do a game or a thing? Or you just definitely not a video game. It'd be a weird <laughs> video game to do. I've thought about it a couple of times. I'm like, what kind of video game would I make out of this? Yeah. But not a good one. Uh, no, I think either a book or a script or something out of it. It's, it's something that's, it's fascinated me the most because of Pelham Glassford. Yeah. And this guy, his nickname was happy. And he was this military guy, but who lived all these different life lives, like as right. a, he so was the an character, artist. Yeah. Which maybe brings you more into novel land or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, and it, especially after January 6th, it's like, man, you look how wrong things can go. <laughs> yeah. But like, would that even be possible now? When you think about the sense of, of, a, of a civic mind that was ingrained, right. a, a citizenship. For people's first impulse when things tip out of control to go, oh, let's take it down a notch. Yes. Is Versus hard let's to imagine to on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Right. That, right. that now it's like, or whatever side it is, it's like the thing happens and it's like, oh, this is because we are victims of, you know, the such and such hegemony. And the, yeah. Or, They're oh, a witch. Burn them. <laughs> exactly. <It's> like, boom. <laughs> it moves into that. I have a feeling more often than not, even throughout history, it's tipped to the bad side it's like the vikings see something it's like let's get them let's wait you know <laughs> but, I, but i feel like to some extent that has to have been the prevailing because you have i'm reading this book the dawn of everything yeah uh, by david graber and david wengro yeah i love that book so yeah. much that's that's one i gotta i gotta digest one chapter at a time because it's like so much yeah but just the the notion that like oh no we we thought there were never cities before there was like agriculture and, and centralized government and it's like oh it turns out there were massive cities yeah. there were you know borderline states yeah it's like changes the whole thing of like uh, oh that people developed and to the point where they could have civilizations it's like no they were people were trying all different civilizations all yeah. the time back and forth yeah there is no law written in human dna that says like once enough of us get together we need we need a centralized authority to stop us from murdering right. each other. Like it, it turns right. out that for maybe for a hundred thousand years, we were able to get by without any of that shit. Yeah. <laughs> somehow. And big one, big, big sharing, yeah. you know, uh, uh, thousands of people living yeah. in communities that looked almost planned, like built in rings and yeah. circles and stuff. Yeah. Just agreeing. Hey, wouldn't this be mutually beneficial? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Right. And changing their system of government seasonally even. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting how flexible people could be. And then, I mean, it, it starts to make it more obvious how the monoculture of capitalism, whatever we're living in, makes it really hard to have that flexibility or resilience to try yeah. different models at different moments. Right? Yeah, no, we've we've built a narrative for ourselves where like, you know how it is? Well, it's this way because it has to be. Right. And it's the whole, you know, you always said mistaking the map for the territory. Yeah. We have a model now that people think of as immutable. This is how it has yeah. to be. And that's why I think, you know, when I look at how bad things are getting in so many aspects of global society and yeah. human civilization right now, I was saying before, like I, I don't know that it's the end, <laughs> right? Because it's too hard to predict what we're actually like. What What are we in the process of transforming society into? Right. And is it into a terminal state or is it into a like another middle period? Right. Are we midwifing civilization to something else, or are we death doulas doing yeah. palliative care? Yeah. <laughs> 
which that's a thing. People don't realize death duels are real. Yeah. I actually think that's a pretty cool job. It's a great job. No, I've been with a few different people as they've died. I mean, it's the greatest privilege yeah. in the world to bear witness to that. It's so intimate. But I'm hoping that's not what we're doing here. So, it, it, which brings me really to the question. I'm, the thing I've been getting so interested in is different people's kind of creative urge and creative mm-hmm. passion. So it sounds to me like part of the reason you would want to be making video games and writing comics now as a creator, and you do both and you move back and forth between them, is to open people's minds to the idea of taking oh, yeah. charge or to having a different narrative. That oh, yeah. There's a fantasy role-playing quality you know, to these things. Yeah. To me, video games, there's such an opportunity because they're they're like a baby Video games now are where like film was in the still in the black and white period. Like right. we've, we're only just now getting to Technicolor, <laughs> right? So the opportunity in games to do something that's never been done before is to me is is just so ripe. Where it's really hard. It's hard to when you're sitting down to to put words on a page. Yeah, like I'm gonna write. Where no one's written these words before in this right. order. Like it's it's hard to feel original. It's hard to feel like, you know, I, I feel like you find yourself patterning stories and, and trying to put new spins on them, but it's harder to find a, a story that's untold. Yeah. Whereas with games, I feel like you have an opportunity to play in a multiverse where you're not telling a story, you're inviting the player to a space. Right. Where they can find a story or where they can express themselves in a way that they can experiment with expression in a right. way that they might not in the real Depending world. Depending on the game, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's just, you know, moving through a, a, a sideways shooter, then maybe not. But even then, maybe so, right? Because strategically, if there's a way that seems like the straightforward path to doing something and then you can figure out right. a new tactic, figure That's out a new true. approach. There's something about like a really good game design forces you to stop thinking so conventionally and challenges you to engage with it more. Right. I guess, you know, sometimes it it is like puzzle solving, I guess at the simplest, like I used to play this game for hours called load runner Yeah, where you just run around and there are these things that chase you and you're going on little bridges, like, and you can make a hole that those guys fall through or they get stuck in, or you can jump through it. So it's a really, but, I mean, I hate to say it, it was kind of like, I mean, this was a long time ago. If you were kind of stoned enough, you could then think of it as like, what's my life? What's my life strategy? Right. You know, right. And see how many levels you could get through doing. I'm going to make sure I'm always doing this or that. So even I know what you mean. Even in a super simple game, you can try on an approach to this world and see if it yeah. works. You know, and then, of course, in a real fantasy role playing, you know, like, the, you know, when you were talking about you create a character. Oh, this character is going to sing. This is a bard. And they're yeah. going to get out of every dangerous situation by writing a song for the yeah. enemy. You know? Yeah. I feel like that games invite us to have that experience. And I tabletop games uh, to me are informing video games now more than they ever were before. Really? Yeah. Because I think that people want that experience of a game that's more reactive to you that, that, that sees you. I always think of it like, how does the game see the player and recognize what they're doing rather than expecting the player to just play by the rules of the game? Right. What if the game anticipates that the player has their own rules that they might be making up? What if right. what if the game is able to react to that? Like, and is that like an AI thing? No, I think the easy go to is like, well, we'll just have AI bots yeah. that'll write everything, and they'll the characters will talk back. And like, you know, I think there's cool stuff there. I know like Neil Stevenson has is working with yeah. this company like In World AI, and they're trying to create virtual beings, and they have some impressive demos and stuff. But like, I think there's we're at least in a place now where there's much more of a room for these really richly scripted experiences mm. that just require a lot of effort, right? It takes a lot, a lot of time and effort well, to write half a million be, to right. a million words exactly. to react There'll to players. Yeah. 20,000 times more words than they will ever uncover. Yeah. But and isn't that amazing? It is, but it's so frustrating. It, well, <laughs> there's, there's a definite, like, you have to be willing to throw stuff out. Like, and right. I've worked on choice-based games where you just know, like, you, you're sort of trying to engineer the narrative in a way where you're not wasting too much. Like, you don't want to create a choice where you're like, well, obviously 90% of people are going to choose 
choice A and choice B is just for the 10% of weirdos. Like yeah. you're usually trying to create a balance of like, right. these choices are equally weighted in such a way. Right. And, and they're, they're equally that. weighted. It also makes the choice more difficult and interesting for the person. You and want every choice. Right? To, yeah. Cause there's no right. You know, you don't, you don't get that kind of, yeah things aren't so stark in real life where you're like, well, this is obviously an easy choice. Like right. something is like difficult is like, where are you going to go to college? What are you going to study? What job do you want to do? Where do you want to live? Do you want to have a family? Like these are harder questions. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think people respond as well to the, Oh, well this is a simple choice. It's not something people can relate to anymore because there right. are no simple choices. And we're, we're coming to realize that. And people want simple choices when they, you know, sit down to stream something, but they're not going to get that either because right. there's too many options for streaming. And even the experience like, of simple choice is stupid. It's like you you make a choice and it's not the first order effect that ends up being the most important thing. Anyway, it's the second and third order effects of your choice that you didn't even realize. Yeah. You know, and that kind of, I don't think that games by and large were we people hadn't developed game making as a craft yet until i really think in the last like 10 15 years to the point where making video games could ever approximate the experience of tabletop games right and now we have games like disco elysium we have games like Baldur's gate 3 you know, we we see these sort of very rich narrative titles that they're simulations of an experience that you could have with people around a table telling stories to each other, but they're also more vividly realized than those tabletop because they put the, the whole world in front of you on the screen. Right. And, around the table, you are imagining the thing. Happening. Yeah. But as I'm playing, for example, Baldur's Gate 3, I'm playing it. I'm probably going to put 100 hours into, into playing it at least. Uh, but I will know that there's still probably four to 900 more hours that I could play it that I'll never experience. Like I'll never be able to make a character in every class and see right. what, what would those characters say in these situations? I'm playing a Druid. I know what my Druid bard is going to say, but I won't get to see what the Geth Yankee warrior. Well, right. <laughs> would I mean, say. but that's the same with you when you're watching TV, like you might watch the entirety of game of Thrones, but you were in one place at a time. Yeah, you know, and went yeah. there. You know, what was Jon Snow doing while you were over there doing that? I think Jon Snow didn't do enough. <laughs> <laughs> that character is such a waste. A There's passive. so much wasted potential there. Yeah, like, he was a beautiful man. He beautiful was modeling. Man. He was modeling in that reality. Yeah, very beautiful. Very quiet. Very passive. Very unable to see the evil queen becoming the evil queen in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. Those poor. Those poor. Uh, uh, what were they called? The Northmen. Uh, they were. They were self righteous. They. They were the Starks. Yeah, the Starks. Yeah, they were yeah. pretty stark. Yeah, 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 they were. But I mean, I think bringing it back to what we were yeah. saying about not all games do this. Like, yeah. I think there are games that are very linear and prescriptive. Well, and, and you, if you look like at that. games, if you're, you know, if we're, we can't sit here and say, oh, and games are going to open up everyone to the new possibilities because you look at, you know, Gamergate or whatever. And it's oh, like yeah. a big population of gamers really are not these enlightened choose your own adventure. Yeah. But there's <laughs> nothing that does. Like LSD doesn't do that, right? I you, thought it would, but it, no, it turns yeah, out right? it doesn't. It would be great if you could just give all the Gamergators some LSD and they'd come back and be like, you know. Yeah, then they're just Gamergators on LSD. Yeah. 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 They, they find a way to affirm it. It's like, here, take this DMT and then then tell me if you still believe in your Christian God. And they come back. And they're like, I saw Jesus. We we laugh together. I'm absolutely certain yeah. now. Like, like, I am more certain than I was before yeah. I took the DMT. Thank you for this spiritually yeah. affirmative experience. Well, right. Like, well, worse is like, take this acid and tell me if you still believe in capitalism. And they come yeah. back, yes, <laughs> yes. And I know how to make money. I'm going to start out to school where I'm training people uh, to take LSD. <laughs> came up with a great idea for a business yeah. it's gonna make so much money like yeah yeah that's i mean we that's are a real who we thing are. we yeah. are who we are i mean that's a talk about character sheets it's yeah. like getting away from your character sheet feels difficult oh yeah the heart attack the real heart attack not my book yeah the real heart attack really broke my character sheet i mean it, it did it yeah, it, put yeah my, I mean, it didn't just make you healthier no i mean it put my whole character sheet up in flames Mm. Like, because I had that moment of touching the future, I've spent 
over the last couple of years, I did a lot of work with creators who are disabled and learned a lot about just like, you know, representing disabled characters in, in, in games and in mm-hmm. fiction and, and, you know, learning more about the experience of, of living with a disability and all of that. And there was a sense that some of, a lot of it resonated for me because I've developed all this arthritis as I've gotten older mm-hmm. and all these different aches and pains. And there were times where my hands wouldn't work and I wouldn't be able to play games or type or use the computer. And I, I remember the, the feelings that I had then of like, oh, this, this is a change that I didn't ask for, that I have no choice and I don't want to get used to it. Right. And like when I had the heart attack, that was a new reality of, oh, I can't keep living the way I've been living or I'll die. Right. I can't, I have to be more active. I have to eat differently. And then once you start making those, those are pretty big choices and changes to make. Bigger commitments. Bigger than you would expect. Oh, yeah. Because it changes time and everything. Changes so much. And what I didn't expect was how much it would change for me, like mentally and emotionally, because it completely reoriented my relationship to every substance ever, whether it was cannabis or alcohol or any like anything. Suddenly I was questioning, why am I putting this in my body? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Right. And it, I don't think poorly of anyone doing anything that they yeah. do because i would be the ultimate hypocrite mm-hmm. if i did but i know that for myself like oh i had a very indulgent my character sheet was like happy go lucky let's let's party while we're alive and i didn't realize all the damage that i was doing to myself right. that made it to the point where i was 38 and i was having a heart attack like and now i'm just trying to unwind all of that because i felt like there's an alternate reality where I just died in the living room in front of my my child and my wife, and and that's the end of the story. And then there's the reality where I kept living the way I was living, and I die a few years from yeah. now. And then there's the reality I'm trying to create where I stay alive for a longer period of time, but I know that at some point in the future, it maybe my heart's going to get me. Like something's going to get me. Well, it gets most of us. Gets well, it gets all of us in the end. But I've but I feel like I touched that moment. Right. I felt like I was there. And I felt I feel like now I can project that forward and I often visit that's the biggest shift in the character sheet. I visit that moment a lot more now when I'm making a choice, when I'm thinking about yeah. what I want to do or what I want to say or how I want to react to something. Even all of the horrible things that are going on right now. I situate myself in the context of I am not going to be here one day. What is the best thing to do with right now? Mm. What is the best way to react right now? And it's, you know, the old me would just want to escape, I think. And the new me, I, I'm, I'm trying to find places where I can take refuge, but without necessarily escaping from it all, because I don't want to be absent from the one lifetime that I have. Right. At least in this multiverse. Right. This branch. Which doesn't mean you have to respond to everything. You know, it's a reaction. It's automatic too. Like, oh, what's my response to this? Sometimes, like, you know, when this particular moment that we're in began, I put up a, a, you know, one minute announcement saying I'm not going to do I'm not even going to post a show right now. Yeah. You know, that, you know, silence isn't always violent. Silence can also be witness bearing witness holding space yeah you know <laughs> there, yeah. there's other people that need to say some things right now yeah. i'm gonna be quiet <laughs> you know let them mic check i'll repeat but i know what you mean that it's like and it's not to say it's so it's so that it's even oh the life is so precious <sighs> um, it's not even that although it is i feel like you know i had this car accident where i lost my best friend and then felt after that well i could have died right then too the rest of life is like borrowed time and almost like gravy. Yeah. It's like, that was it. And it can happen in that kind of moment. Or I've had really peak positive experiences where I've said to myself, God, if I live my whole life for this moment, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, yeah. it, it overflows to the point where, oh, I was fully alive just then so alive yeah and more alive than i ever anticipated getting to be in this lifetime yeah god you did it you well, did I've had, it i've had moments <laughs> like 
the most mundane moments. Yeah. I had I had a, a moment like a few months ago sitting on the couch with just like my dog, my kid, my wife. We're all in the same little like two seat love seat cuddled up together. And like we're watching TV and I started crying. Yeah. <laughs> I got all like misty because I, I had this moment where I'm like like just kind of looking and feeling that everyone's there and I'm here and I'm very I'm feeling very present and I just have this moment of like wow this okay this is peak like yeah. hold this because when you're older and you don't have all of this around you like remember that yeah. you had this cuz cuz it's and here and it's going all the way to whatever your your mammal dna yeah. the, you know father you know offspring oh, and yeah. loved one and around the, it, the, the it, fire you you go into this like fractal state of your heritage and your future and my whole belief of like that our children are the tiny time travelers that we're sending into the, you know, we're sending beyond the the horizon where we cannot follow. Right. Like if we're lucky, you know, if they, as long as if some people lose their kids and I think right. that's the ultimate fear, right. it's the ultimate terror. Because when you think about your, your purpose as a parent, it's to send your tiny time traveler yeah. ahead of you. Your purpose as a parent. And, but it's interesting though, because as, as I mean, we both know it's hard to know if the experience of parenting to the parent is ultimately a net positive. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> there's so or, much, so many nights. I mean, does the, the sacrifice, right? Does the great essay or the school play or the wonderful daddy, I love you moment outweigh the terror and horror when they're sick or you don't yeah. know what's wrong or they're in danger. It's like my kid being sick bothers me like a hundred times more than myself being sick. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's wild that, that it's so amplified. I mean the vulner. I guess it's really the, the surface area of my vulnerability went up exponentially. Yeah. It unfolds, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, here's a two-dimensional shape unfolding into three dimensions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I will always say one of the most psychedelic moments I ever had without any drugs yeah. was when my son opened his eyes. And this was before I'm adopted. And it was before I found any of my my biological family. And like he opened his eyes and you know, I'm 30 years old, and that's the first time in 30 years that I've seen anyone with any aspects of my face or features reflected back at me. It's your first blood relative. First blood relative. And he opens his eyes and he's got these big brown eyes and they kind of look like mine. And I just, you know, you feel the finger <laughs> opening the third eye. You're like, whoa, like this is too much. And I just remember like I was going back to the house to like pick up my mother-in-law and bring her to the hospital. And my mom calls and I'm driving my car and my mom calls and I hear my mom's voice and I just start sobbing. Uh, and I'm like, I, I just want you to know I love you so much and I understand so much better now. I'm a parent. What you did for me is so good. Like, thanks, mommy. That flood of emotions, that was worth it. I had that flood of emotions and I immediately wondered, I should probably have life insurance. I oh, I got that. That was, uh, well, that was, I had a friend, I had a good friend, Jason Smith, who I ran a podcast network with and, and he, he passed away during the pandemic. He died suddenly from a heart failure thing to, to where like he didn't yeah. feel good. By the time he got to the hospital, he was, he was dead. And I thought of him when I was having my heart yeah. attack, but it was after he died that I I actually went and got my life insurance policy. I I finally that was the moment of like oh god because he was only a few years older than yeah. me. It, it really hit me of like oh oh man there's a lot I got a lot of balls in the air that'll <laughs> drop if I drop so I better I better cover this yeah. and now I do feel life insurance is great. Because it does give me this, like, even as I was having the heart attack, I'm thinking, oh, at least I got life insurance. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking, like, right. they'll be okay. Worst case <laughs> scenario, won't be so bad, like, for them. Like, they'd probably rather have me, but at least they'll have yeah. a, a financial cushion. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. That's a morbid way to think, but it's also, you're totally right. Like, the exposure, I feel like 
having a child, like a lot of artists, I think struggle with when your work goes public. Right. Because that's a moment of exposure and vulnerability because if people don't like it, it, yeah. it does feel personal. It feels like they don't like you. Right. It's also the, you know, it's not just the child thing, but it's the liability of developing compassion. Yeah. You know, because yeah. then they're all, these are all people, you know, if you have empathy, this is a hard moment to have empathy. There's so much, you know, Well, I was walking suffering. around Brooklyn this morning and it's always weird because I live in LA now and coming back to New York and like being like, oh my God, so many people around yeah. me. Like, like they're all up in my space too. <laughs> and like this woman was crossing the street and some car like got too close to her. And so she's yelling about like, oh, this person is such a Man. bad fucking driver. Like, ah, oh, like fuck them. And I'm like looking at her and I'm, for some reason I went to the space where you just were, I'm like, you were a baby once. And I started looking, I'm looking at everybody and I'm like, oh, you're all, we're all just like little children that are like, we're an accumulation of scars and traumas that ever since that first <laughs> moment. Right. And that's all any of us are. And I'm kind of looking at everyone looking to like, see if I could still see their inner child. Like, are, the, right. are you still there? Well, and then if it's, that's true, which it probably is, then it's a miracle that we're not just biting and kicking each other and screaming at each other all the time. It is. Although know? children are so loving. They're not, well, they're not, not all of them, but like a lot of them, they're so, I mean, I was they lucky. I had a very happy kid. Yeah. He laughed a lot. Yeah. He was a very smiley, laughy boy. Like, that was nice. Huh? I, you know, one day he's going to be a teenager and I'll remember that, that smiling, laughing boy. I'll be like, where did he go? Yeah. <laughs> but maybe he'll be a smiling, laughing yeah. teenager. I don't know. I'm so bad at predicting the future. I can put my pulse on like a larger demographic or sociological trend, yeah. but I can't figure out any one person or anything from moment to moment. And when I take myself, you know, in that, Dr. Manhattan place of yeah. being in the past, the present, and the future and existing in all, all spaces and times at the same time. And I bring myself back to like, well, what am I supposed to do right now? I think often on advice that you gave me a long, long time ago, which was you can't really make a big change with a big movement. Like a movement is a too abstracted from whatever right. good it was supposed to be doing. The best you can do is work locally <laughs> within your own community or even just within the space of your own home to make a place where there's peace, to make a place where there's compassion. Right. Like I can't, I can't see the inner child of everyone in Brooklyn and, and find a way to, to bring peace and help that lady to stop yelling at the car that almost hit her and help the person to the car to stop almost hitting that lady because they're, they're driving too fast to get to right. a job they hate or whatever but it is. But to think that the full spectrum single sentence you might say to somebody in your life or in your world, how much more of a remote high leverage point for systemic change that might be than a tweet that you've tweeted out to your 50,000 yeah. followers, you know, who are all going to interpret it differently and it's going to add to their brittleness or, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, oh yeah. it was a successful one. You got a lot of likes, but what was the actual impact, yeah. you know, versus this kind of, you know, full fractal possible. Well, and that's, I, that's why I've stopped chasing that dopamine hit of like social media. It's why I'm doing such a poor job promoting my book <laughs> because I'm not chasing a number anymore. I reached a point where I realized the number wasn't going to make me like, I think financially a number can make <laughs> me feel better, but, yeah, but safer. But when I think about, I've written games now that millions of people have played, right? Mm. Like, like, like mathematically I cannot hold in my head all of the people who have, played my work and and yet that gives me nothing like that knowing that gives me no like doesn't nourish me mm. emotionally or mentally in any way but what does is when one person one-on-one <laughs> -on -one, when you're having an interaction and they're like hey, you wrote that thing this moment really resonated with me uh -huh. and I felt very connected to that. When I hear that, I'm like, well, I feel very connected with you because you connect because <laughs> that when I wrote that, I was very connected with that moment. So let's have a hug. Uh, and that moment, that's more nourishing yeah. than, than knowing like, oh, like 15 million players 
saw this or, oh, this got a hundred million YouTube views. Like it doesn't really mean anything till it's in front of you and it's a person and there's an actual exchange of, of emotion and energy. Right. I mean, I sometimes I wonder, do you need to have had even the hundred thousand whatever views to know that's true? You know, hopefully not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to me, I think I think when I was younger, I was chasing it. Yeah. There was a part of me that wanted to be famous. Well, that's what social media taught us all. Now now I'm like so bad at being famous (laughs) that I'm like, I'm deleting Twitter. I'm not going to post on Instagram for a year. (laughs) Let's not go on Facebook anymore. Let's just retreat into like real reality. You're making your publicist really happy there. But you know, I don't know how well those things really work. Anyway, you're so much better off having other people tweet about you if someone's going to than what promoting your own work on your own friggin' account and yeah. helping for followers or this like ah. I was just... trying to build a cult of personality, which I I think you've resisted pretty much. Yeah. Well, like, otherwise, look at what happened to poor Naomi. You know, she lost <laughs> lost control of her own yeah. her own personality out well, there. Another cult collides with your cult. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I don't like the idea of another public me out there simultaneous with me. And how do you go to sleep at night? What could it be doing yeah. you know, <laughs> without you? Yeah, but we'll see. That's why if there's too much of me out there, to me, it's, it becomes very dishonest. At a certain point, it becomes much more insincere. Yeah. If I were just TikToking and saying all the things that we're talking about, but like alone in my car to my phone on the selfie cam and blasting it out to a bunch of followers versus just like sitting here and having a conversation with you, I would not have the memory of sitting here and having a conversation with you in an exchange. I would just have a memory of like, I blasted something out there. Yeah. Oh, boom. I shot my shot. Yeah. Like that. There's no thrill. There's no joy there. There's nothing. There's no satisfaction to be found. The only satisfaction is connection. Yeah. Real connection. The hug that you get. You know, mm. the, I had a moment with a, a Superman actor where I'm a big Superman fan. And when I met one of the actors from injustice Two, and he was telling me, he's like, man, that scene where Superman meets Supergirl, like, man, that got me so emotional, man. And I'm like, oh, well, I wrote that about the first time I, my son opened his eyes and <laughs> I had this connection of seeing someone with my eyes for the first time. And he's like, that's where that line came from. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, let's have a hug. And I'm like, oh, that hug just felt so like I've gotten a hug from Superman. And it felt so good because it was real. You got a hug from Superman. I got a hug from Superman. My bucket list is very checked. Yeah, it's funny. That was a Grant so Morrison's ways. bucket list too. Was really? to meet to meet Superman, and he, <laughs> and he did, did at Comic Con. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that became All Star Superman. Yeah, like I think if you're a comics writer, a real comics writer, I think they all deep down want to meet Superman. Well, I think we all want to be saved by Superman. Yeah, that's the fight. I think there's there's some. Well, there's some. You're all Lois Lane. I've definitely met some people who think they are Superman, yeah, and yeah. maybe their egos should be checked yeah. more. But then I think a lot of us. Especially those of us who aren't trying so hard to project alpha energy at all times. Yeah. If you're really being real with yourself, you're like, you just want Superman to catch you and hold you with those big, strong arms, yeah. right? Like, I, <laughs> I got a hug from Ronda Rousey once, speaking of, of hugs. Uh-huh. And she is so strong and so muscular. I have never felt safer in the arms of another person more than when Ronda Rousey gave me a hug. Aww. I was just like, you could defend me from anything. Right. <laughs> like, like, I don't think she was trying to hug me hard. I think she just had that natural strength, but like, I hope I can give people hugs like that. Yeah. Like, Anyway, now we're getting all kumbaya. Yeah. Let's wrap our, our arms around each yeah. other. But can I tell people your son is named, uh, is Clark. His name Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a gift from my wife to me. Like I always <laughs> wanted to name a kid Clark, but I never wanted to force it. Right. And we had like a few names as options. And then when he was born the first night we didn't name him. And then it's like, okay, we got to put something on the birth certificate. Yeah. What, what's it going to be? And she was like, he's a little gentleman. I think he's a Clark. And I just Really? And she's like, and I think we'll, make his middle name Eric after your dad. And I'm like, oh my God, like you're just giving it to me. Like, <laughs> and then my dad calls and he's like, all right, so, so what's the name going to be? And we're like, Clark, Eric. And he just, you hear him weeping on the phone. Just <laughs> like, uh, but I feel like those, again, those are those connective moments. Yeah. 
That's what I'm really living for. Cause there's just none of that. You don't get a lot of social media posts where you're like, I'm crying because I feel such joy and, uh, and connection. No, which is why it's so much it's, it's really so nice to not worry about that whole space. Yeah. It's just especially in in darker times when people are scoring meanness points on there. It's just there's yeah. I really don't see the point. Well, people uh, are really losing it. Yeah. I feel like they're tweeting about Hamas and Israel and Palestine, but they're, are they really tweeting about that? No. Or are, those it, are the right? words. Right? Are the, those, are those, those are the words, but they're manifesting a pain of another sort. Yeah. It's not really about any of that. Well, because the way you know is because, I mean, most of the people I speak with, are, they don't know the basic geography or history. Or yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. read the founding documents of, yeah. of Hamas before <laughs> yeah. you start throwing in your lot with them lately. Like, yeah. Find out what these things actually represent. And again, it's like, I don't think you make change with a movement. No. And I put that into the heart attack as a book. I'm supposed to be plugging the book. I'm really bad right, at you it. You can plug but, it and but, we'll conclude. Yeah, All right. that's a good way to conclude with, yeah. with doing the thing that I was I'm yeah. supposed to do and I'm bad at. But like I had that chapter that ends with the massacre and that felt, the fact that that cliffhanger was just lying there for four years just felt awful <laughs> in so many ways. And I had already written the, the ending like before all of this, before the pandemic, before everything, but talking about want, trying to manifest stuff through your work. I did feel like as I was writing the ending, I was already aware. I mean, so many things had already happened with demonstrations for social justice and black lives matter. Mm. And, counter movements and people being shot at protests yeah. and all this stuff. I was very aware that the book was taking on a, a relevance that it didn't have when I, in 2013, right. when I first thought about it, it went from being a near future to a now future yeah. kind of thing. So when I was writing the ending, I had initially had this like really brutal ending in mind and I couldn't bring myself to do it. Because I felt like if I wrote that brutal ending, what if that comes true too? Right. And so I wanted something. I, I turned away from the Shakespearean tragedy and toward something that I felt was more optimistic. And that really is very much a team human informed point of view, which is, well, what if this is kind of a spoiler, but, but it's just a thematic spoiler. Yeah. Like what if instead of giving into all of these horrible things or giving into these worse things, that's so easy to fall into in these times of hysteria right. and hype. What if we went smaller and went local and just focused on the things we can change? And what if, what if that was enough? Right. What if the book doesn't have to be about saving or changing or affecting the world? What if it's enough to just change one life at a time? Right. And it's almost like asking what if we as human beings stopped seeing those maps and names as our reality, yeah. you know, it's certainly, that's why I always argue, you know, a good, what if we just took 1% of us, you know, so 10 million people on the planet can worry about yeah. top down change. That's probably enough. And yeah. the rest of us could just like take care of each other. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when you, when you see those maps of like the United States and it's like, oh, there's all these red States and yeah. blue cities and stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, but you know, there's red people in the blue zones and there's blue people in the red zones. This map isn't real. Right. <laughs> this Although the map then influences where people choose to move. Right. And it makes itself real. Right. But even then it'll never completely Right. There will always be that one person, that one gay kid in the neighborhood who stands up and is like, you know, I don't think I'm a sinner. <laughs> like, I think I just love the people I love. Yeah. And that's okay. Then suddenly they're the blue person in the red yeah. town. Like, I think you always have someone. I don't know. That's that's my hope, at least. Yeah. That there's always one person, at least, who's saying, guys, I don't know. I don't know if we should be so convinced. Yeah. Maybe that's the real Superman. It's just the person who's not convinced. Yeah. I think so. And has the courage to say it. Well, I think that's yeah. not to like blow smoke up your ass on your own podcast. Uh -huh. But like that's the hero you've always been for me. Oh. Really? Like you they they say don't meet your heroes, but you were the one hero who I met 
who made a real difference in my life in the way that I thought. And you were warm and kind and not because you had to be. Uh, um, oh, did you were uh, you saved me from so many uh, uh crises but we had, and we had fun together yeah we did but that's where i, I really mean it like i told you like the, i've had a lot of assholes in my career <laughs> who i've reacted against by trying to not be them but then i've also always remembered the door that you opened for me and mm. tried to open it for other people and like again it's not about if i get the tweets and the, the reactions it's like well if at least if I die, I know a bunch of people will probably show up at the funeral and tell my kid, like, your dad opened a door right. for me. He wasn't an asshole to work for. <laughs> he was decent. If that's my contribution, that's enough. Yeah, that's good. I like that, but it is true. These days, the way to be a hero is simply don't be an asshole. Just don't be an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> You're ahead of the game. Just give it away. Just give away some goodness. Uh well, thanks. It's inspiring to see what you've become uh, and what you've done. And everybody, buy heart attack, but don't have a heart attack. Yes. Yes. It's not essential. <laughs> You'll see. It's a different kind of heart attack anyway in there. Yeah. It's all good. It's a loving heart attack. Mm. It's a love attack. Love attack. That'll be the sequel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. Thanks, for being Doug. On Team Human. Glad to play. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Sean Kittleson. You can check out his graphic novel now, Heart Attack, or um, find links in the show notes for the show or by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also click on support to become a supporter of the team, get the ad-free Team Human team feed, access to our Discord, and all sorts of other great stuff. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human for superhero humans everywhere. Our last best hope for peeps. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.